This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. I'm Samuel Mann. I'm at Otago Polytechnic in Dunedin today, and I am joined by Kat Balsink, who is in the Graduate Lab of Sociology at Waikato. Welcome, Kat. Kura, Sam. It's great to be here today. So how was your bubble life? So my bubble life is it's, it's quite nice. Um, it's a different bubble to that I was in last year. I went back uh, and stayed with my mother during lockdown. So it was her and one of my sisters. But I'm kind of in a different bubble now in that I live just off campus and I, you know, I come into the graduate lab each day. So I feel like I'm in this sociology bubble now uh, with the faculty and the other graduate students. So, you know, kind of lockdown might be over, but I'm still in a bit of a bubble. So that's quite nice, actually. So were you studying remotely last year? Yes, yes. Um, so I was in my last year of undergraduate and when lockdown happened, I kind of decided which textbooks and library books and everything <laughs> to take. Um, luckily, I had the foresight when we entered level two and must have been kind of sometime in March last year, I thought the library might be closing. And so I went to the <laughs> library and kind of pulled ahead of it and, you know, came out with a big bag of books that I um had to lug up to Auckland in an extra suitcase uh, on that Wednesday, right before lockdown happened. So luckily I was well stopped during lockdown, but still found myself having to resort to PDFs and that kind of thing, which, you know, wasn't ideal, but, you know, the sacrifices we have to make during lockdown. And did you get back to studying when lockdown was over? Yes, yeah. Um, so kind of, it just, it was quite odd really because I... It, in a way, last year didn't feel like I was studying uh, because even when lockdown was over and I went back to Wellington, uh, I did my undergraduate at Vic. I moved up here in January this year. Um, but for my la- for last year, even when it was over, I didn't really go back to campus um, because you know various things, kind of the ease, the fact that everything had to be on Zoom anyway, the fact that. Whenever we were in level two, we couldn't study on campus and that kind of thing. So I found myself still essentially being in a little home bubble uh, or a flat bubble at that point and had a a weird experience where I went back onto campus sometime in October last year, about a month before I graduated. And I thought, hang on, this is probably the third or the fourth time I'll ever be on campus again during my degree. So kind of, it really did change how I studied last year do you think that you you managed to do that perhaps because you had got the the first couple of years 
on campus you'd like made the connections you'd you'd like knew who you were your your, your studying identity was in place because i'm thinking of people of which we both know too um for whom it was their first year last year mm-hmm. i think that they had it particularly yeah. challenging oh absolutely you know i it would be a totally different uh experience kind of i did my first year at Auckland uni and then transferred down to Vic, not because of anything academic, um, purely because I found a cheap flat one summer in Wellington and, you know, decided to move because of that, which I think is a very modern thing. Um, But so, you know, in some ways I was already used to kind of moving about while studying. And so it felt essentially just like a transfer again, you know, just to distance learning. But the fact that I knew the professors in person, I think, was a really important thing because... I could have actually some great one hour, one and a half hour, two hour Zoom calls with them, bouncing off ideas for my uh, final projects and essays and that kind of thing. And I think, I think especially if you're starting undergraduate, it's a it's a very different experience as you're kind of figuring out not only your learning identity but also your way around the university and you know faculty and uh, your TAs and that kind of thing. There's so many different relationships to navigate, and I think that. While distance learning is so is is great for keeping, you know, keeping relationships up and being able to still study and that kind of thing, it would be so hard to it would be so hard to study. Um, actually, the two summers before uh, twenty twenty, I've been doing distance papers online as partially a way to get some extra credit, partially uh, to keep the student uh, allowance coming in, but. I really struggled with those distance papers. Uh, they were all taught on the LMS. And it's quite ironic, really, when 2020 came around and the summer school of the 2019 to 2020 summer finished, I was like, fantastic. No more distance learning. No more having to do anything on the LMS. <laughs> and we know we know, that, you know, so I think it wasn't, I think it wasn't easy for anyone. Um, and, you know, if you were starting university or less confident, in the university, it would def- it would definitely be a challenge uh, because even just the informal conversational dynamics in classes are a lot harder to get uh, via distance learning and via uh, learning learning management systems or the LMS. I had a course that tried, and I think this was a really good thing to try, a discussion board where we could have these weekly discussions like, you know, we would in a class informally rather than it being kind of, you know, get a question and slides, <laughs> hand it back kind of thing. Uh, but the discussion board, because it was, you know, aimed to replace in-class discussion, didn't have course credit. And I think you probably know just as well what happens to things that aren't <laughs> assigned course credit, you know. Um, and even, even if you do do them, I think, there's a strange... people You haven't... I don't think people have figured out how to engage with things like uh, discussions on Moodle or Blackboard or Canvas or whatever system you use, because, and especially more so if it's marked, because it's not an essay and it's not any kind of formal academic writing, but it's also not a Twitter thread. And so you're in this kind of strange liminal space of communication, and it's kind of like, do I cite things? Do I... Put a bibliography <laughs> at the end of all my posts, you know what I mean? And that's this kind of thing that 
I think we've all we all had to really figure out how do we engage in this new kind of learning environment, you know. So it affected everyone, but I think if you weren't already established, it would have been a lot harder. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Ariel Pink, Another Weekend. Why this one? That's a very good question. I've, um, I have quite diverse music tastes. I looked through my um, on repeat on Spotify and the first out of the first five, two of them were in English. And so that kind of ruled out a lot of the <laughs> um, ones. And then I kind of didn't want anything sad because, you know, it's a, it's a Friday morning kind of, we didn't really want any sad energy. So I kind of found the first kind of, well, it'll be a big song, you know, and it mentions the weekend. So I thought, you know, perfect song for Friday.
Annette, you're talking there about how the the lockdown has affected the 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 mechanisms of learning. Do you mm-hmm. think that it has changed how your generation learns in a sort of a, a bigger picture or, or how perhaps you're thinking about your careers? That's a really good question. You know, I think I think in some ways I'm cautious to make these really big statements about, you know, kind of generations that reminds me, you know, of the idea of digital natives, you know, that's kind of long past its uh, peak. But I think it's, from personal experience, it's really changed how I, how I learn and also how I'm uh, approaching academia as a new grad student who's, you know, looking to make it a career because so many things are not just online but accessible from all over the world. So I've been able to go to guest lectures in London uh, as a you know participant. Um, I'm hopefully participating in a virtual workshop on on inter- uh, intersectionality and uh, class politics run by the University of Newcastle next month. You know, kind of I probably wouldn't even have heard of that last year, let alone two years ago, let alone being able to put myself there as a participant. So I think that I think that if we see anything, it might be a increased uh, use and a kind of acceptance of MOOCs, you know, the massive old online I can't agree what the acronym stands for. Um, what do you know what MOOC stands for? Community? Massive online massive online Classroom. Course, classroom, course, something course, like that. Um, course, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I think that before there was a kind of idea that why is this online? It's not the same as in-person teaching, you know, kind of anyone can take it. But as we've seen courses adopt this kind of flexi approach, it's actually become more similar to a MOOC, you know, but more hands-on. And I think that we're likely to see kind of like perhaps even more kind of distance doctorates like uh, Flinders in Australia does and kind of things that are halfway in between a MOOC and, you know, a flexi university course. I think these, these things are going to be more common because people simply realise that there's these opportunities, whether academic, professional development courses, uh, online jobs, you know, online contributions, all this stuff is accessible and we had the technology for it before, but now the motivation and the access, I think, has really been given for them. What are you studying? What's your dissertation on? Cool. So I'm um, I'm doing labour studies, which is now part of sociologies, but I still sometimes like to call it labour studies. And so I'm doing actually two research projects at the moment, one my honours dissertation, another randomly one of the same length that's unrelated. But I'm what I'm interested in is looking at uh, workplace conflict and specifically kind of what uh, creates and what motivates and what motivates workplace conflict and how and what the forms it takes. Because we've seen in 
labor studies research recently, a really exciting development away from this kind of classic universalist understanding of kind of uh, class divisions, you know, or, you know, the standard industrial relations style thing. And we've seen things like critical race theory start to come in, intersectionality, and understand that actually working people, employees, want to change on a lot of different things. Um, and we've seen this also in practice with things like the 5 for 15 uh, New Labour movement in the United States in particular. So I'm looking at two examples of uh, this kind of new workplace conflict in the food service sector here in Aotearoa. So for my dissertation, I'm looking at uh, restaurant employees, which is a very un-unionised sector. And if you're not familiar with uh, anything to do with unions, uh, the reason why restaurants are very under-unionised, even compared to other sectors in New Zealand, is that there's a lot of small workplaces. That's the main thing, because it means that when you're having to do this work on a workplace-by-workplace -workplace basis, it's a lot of work with relatively small payoff. But what we've seen, uh, and what I've seen through my kind of anecdotal, you know, my, I, know, I know restaurant workers as friends and that kind of thing, is that that doesn't mean, the lack of a union doesn't mean that restaurant workers aren't taking action on things. There are, whether it's pay equity, or whether it's sexual harassment, or rosters coming out too late, you know, there's a wide range of things. Uh, they're doing things about it themselves, whether it's all going to talk to the boss together, or all taking your, or you know, forcing them to take their uh, meal break at the same time. There's a whole bunch of different things, and because it's because it's informal, people are really creative about how they do it. And so, I'm looking at I'm doing semi-structured interviews of restaurant workers around uh, the country, asking them if they've had this informal organising in their workplace, what's driven it, and what's, how do they do it as a kind of exploratory study looking at the organisational dynamics of how this kind of pretty interesting, I think, and also under-researched uh, phenomenon takes place. And my other research that I'm doing at the moment, I just got my ethics approval back for it yesterday, which is quite exciting. I'm looking at uh, fast food union delegates uh, in the Upper North Island. And New Zealand is quite special here in that fast food has always been very under-unionised, uh, particularly because of the practices of the multinational fast food companies. But Unite Union really led the way in the, in the mid-2000s on actually kind of entering into the fast food sector and, and uh, you know, had these significant wins, kind of like ending the zero contracts before the government uh, prohibited them and this kind of thing. They're actually speaking to people in labour studies and trade unions internationally. They see New Zealand as the model for how to successfully do this. So I'm looking at fast food union delegates here in New Zealand to understand how they, uh, how they show what are called union citizenship behaviours, um, which is a kind of organisational theory concept of how to, you know, it's not active things like, say, organising a strike, but it's how do they relate to both the union organisers 
and their co-workers because you know union delegates have this really interesting dual role as a kind of mediator between these two groups how do they build rapport and trust with these citizenship behaviors to build loyalty and actually establish a successful and uh, unionized uh, crew as they call it so those are my two projects you know they're similar in some ways different in others but I'm hoping that they'll come out as two really interesting case studies of of labor studies that look at and really show kind of the passion and the creativity of uh, employees and working people wanting you know a better life and better conditions studying it this year that's going to unavoidably have a, a layer of covid over it not yes. a layer of the virus you understand and i was thinking yeah, about the those um we, we hear quite a lot about how the workers in the gig economy and in the the mm. new service sector aren't unionized and there's mm. lots of dispute about particularly in the gig economy that people are tricked mm. into becoming employers or becoming self-employed mm. or contractors and all that sort of stuff and what we've discovered across the world is that those people are really important because yes. when, when we were in, in lockdown and surviving a pandemic, those were the ones that we labelled essential. Exactly. You know, I saw a um, tweet that said, and this is from the US, of course, we had a less strict lockdown, but it said lockdown, middle class people stay inside and working class people bring them food. You know, and we didn't have that here. I think that a lot more people could stay inside because, you know, fast food, restaurants, takeaways, or were shut into level four. But, you know, the similar thing really stood out where kind of, in general, some jobs can, you know, work from home or telework, but there's a lot that can't. And how do we look after and ensure that people that can't work at home are staying safe and able to do the important jobs they do as best they can. They might get some more leverage out of the realization that they turn out that they are more important than we thought they were. Yeah, I, I think so, and I hope so because we can we can really break down kind of leverage in labor studies into two forms: organizational and effective. And the historically the strongest uh, unions and the strongest kind of industrial sectors have been ones where they've both had organizational strength and effective strength, meaning they've had an important position. And you think of something like uh, the wharfies, the miners, steel, engineers, you know, the very historically strong bastions of uh, trade unionism in New Zealand, in Australia, in England, in America, they've all both had strong unions and important parts of the economy and what we've seen what we've seen today with this new labor movement whether it's fast food or gig delivery drivers is that because it's new the organizational strength isn't there yet but increasingly people are realizing this effective strength they've had because of the important role they play in society you know and i think actually delivery drivers are a kind of gig riding delivery app and uh, the UK, their drivers went on strike yesterday. And so I think that actually COVID has made people realise this effective power that 
the gig economy, gig economy employees and precarious workers actually have that's, you know, been thought to be absent in Thailand. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orakanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kotahoho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique. And here making the better thank you so as we know together we have journeyed for a year now and we have moved through multiple states of being so many different lockdown levels and restrictions different states of freedom and I know that for all of us we're still processing what has taken place and what is taking place around us here in Aotearoa New Zealand and around the world. Societally so much is shifting, so much has to shift, so much has shifted for us all as a result of this pandemic and I know that for everybody there is now a part of us that has awoken that is here sharing new ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling, creating together. And for all of us, I think, we now appreciate so much more what we have. And for me particularly, my life is dedicated to the living world, the natural world that we're all a part of. And I'm so grateful that we're co-evolving with all life in an infinite web. And I know that for all of us, we feel that innate creativity that is part of who we are as a species, that we can bring our imagination, our, our consciousness, our powerful, powerful consciousness into play whenever we choose to, whenever we want to, to really celebrate what we care about, what we value. So today I've been really enjoying working with the Otago Museum, making some videos to promote their upcoming photography awards. And this year I have my own category, which is very exciting, and it is the social media category. So everybody can send in their photos of our wild spaces, our urban spaces, plants, animals, anything and everything that they love. And I will be sharing these photos on my social media. So of course for me, I feel that it's so important that we seek out the best tools that we can use in the best way to serve our hearts, values, what we really care about, what we really love. And so for me, that does mean harnessing as much as I can my ability to excite and encourage others to share their creativity and their love for the world that surrounds them. For some people, I know that social media can have really challenging and difficult aspects but for me I choose to really use it as the tool the helpful tool that I think that it is and that it can be so as much as possible to share and promote all the wonderful things that are taking place around us it's how I really enjoy using social media so I really hope that for you at this time as we're all moving together towards a different way of being that we're now opening the borders up to Australia we're having our trans-Tasman bubble that more and more we can make use of the tools that we know work best for us and we can support and encourage each other to move into this new phase and make sure that we're helping each other to stay safe 
using those technologies to scan our QR codes, to be aware of where everybody's going, what everybody's doing, in order to work together and protect each other. So for me, this show has been immensely helpful over the last year. And I know that for everybody we've spoken to around the world and everybody that has listened to the show, it has really helped them to appreciate what we can do together. And when we give each other the space and the time to share how much we can learn from each other. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for making use of the tools around you and creating new ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Kat Balsink. Kat, we've seen lots of societal change over the, the last year scary now we could say the last year it was the last few months what do you think is going to stick and perhaps more importantly what do you hope will stick well what i hope sticks is this idea that public health and looking after each other is important because that's what's really got us through that's really you know what's got us through the last year is the fact that we've had a health system and health policy that's enabled us all to, well, most of us to stay home when we need to. Uh, we've had the courage to go into lockdown, do the wage subsidy and all this kind of thing where other countries, uh, particularly, you know, lots of the US states, Texas and Florida, being the ones that everybody likes to rag on, haven't had the recognition that actually there's stuff that's more important than keeping their businesses open. And so I think that if there's one thing that I really hope sticks is this view that we, you know, have to look after each other more. Um, And I think it's a different kind of, you know, people talk about the corona crisis. And the last time I feel that a lot of people really talked about the idea of the crisis was, of course, after the uh, GFC in 2008. And in sociology and economics then, there was this idea of the return of the state because the state was so important in you know, bailing out the banks, providing relief, and getting us through the crisis. And people wondered then, is this a end to austerity and neoliberalism? It wasn't, um, you know, kind of the state nationalised some things, gave money to things, and then kind of kept doing what it did. But what we've seen last year and still you know continuing this year is that it's been a different kind of crisis that's affected people in different ways and i think you know if you think about things like how the support that people have shown for the nhs uh in the uk and you know in the last year and kind of the support that uh, nhs nurses and other medical workers have got it hasn't always still you know being reflected in in policy in public policy and i think it was about a two percent pay rise that nurses in the uk were offered uh last month and nurses here have called the offer that they've got as a probably pay rise and april fool's joke you know so i think that there's a disconnect here between what we realize is necessary and valuable as you know for this kind of uh, effective and this solidarity dimension that you know is is something that's been implemented but it hasn't 
consistently be implemented. So I think if there's one thing, I really hope that that kind of principle stays at the heart of uh, policy and how we treat each other going forwards because COVID's sticking around. So kind of, we still need to look out for one another. Why do you think, given all the policy options that were available to a government, why do you think our government was so quick, not quick, it's the wrong, right, wrong word, was so sure that the public health direction was the right one? Mm. This is a really interesting question and actually kind of something I've been contemplating writing a paper paper on and we'll see kind of, um, you know, how the ideas come together a bit. Uh, something I do, but I think I think the main thing is not just the fact that there's the Labour Party in power, which I think is the big thing, but not the only thing, because Australia also did also is doing pretty well, you know, and the travel bubble is a sign of how successful both of our countries have been, and you know, on the Commonwealth level, they do have uh, a Liberal National Coalition government. I think the big thing has been that private health companies and health insurance companies don't have a lot of influence here in New Zealand or in Australia, which meant that health policy could be led, and indeed here it was faced by public health bureaucrats and actually uh, Bloomfield. And that isn't to disparage the bureaucrats, it's to say that actually they could see what needed to be done from a public health perspective, told the government, and the government could do it. Um, and I think also we've had the advantage of being close to successful public health responses in uh, Vietnam and Taiwan, the Chinese mainland. And we've had these examples, and I think the government, and I believe this was shown in our released cabinet papers, was considering a lockdown in early to mid-March even, based off what these countries were doing. And I think you compare that to the US where private healthcare and insurance companies, you know, have long dominated the conversation around healthcare reform is that that advice wasn't considered by the politicians because they're so used to listening to, you know, the healthcare companies. And I think the UK... The NHS is fantastic, but when the government is, you know, selling off the GP clinics and other healthcare practices to these US US healthcare firms, it's a similar thing where they're also listening to these um, insurance companies and stuff more so than public health advice. So I think that my, and this is just my view, I think that really the, I think the simple answer is we haven't let big healthcare insurance companies take over the kind of both policy and public discourses surrounding um, surrounding kind of health and COVID specifically. Yeah, I think one of the things that this has shown is that well-being has got legs. It's got legs for public mm. policy. When they brought out the well-being budget, those of us that care about such things and the policy wonks and and could could see that this is a fundamental shift mm-hmm. and while the media took a little bit of notice it was quite quickly back to yeah but where's the money mm. 
And I think that this has really shown that that focus on well-being and kindness can actually be the basis for public policy. Mm, absolutely. And I think that the these things, you know, take time because especially in New Zealand, a lot of the stuff we like to read and we get comes from overseas. And I think it's part of the colonial kind of past, but when something new gets developed here, it doesn't catch on as easily as what's flashy, you know? And so I think that, and also, you know, famously, Treasury doesn't give the most progressive economic advice, you know? So I think I think that the government had a really courageous moment in introducing this, well, the idea of well-being at the heart of public policy and um, kind of a vision for the future. And I think that what really needs to happen now, and I hope it does, is that, you know, in social policy and public policy and sociology and economics departments, students and faculty alike both actually start to kind of consider this well-being, this idea of, you know, well-being and policy, not just based off uh, government or treasury's ideas of it, but different ideas of how we can include well-being in uh, socioeconomic policy and this kind of thing, because it's that kind of debate I feel that really allows us to develop it and entrench it into policy discourse going forwards. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic, the pandemic response, for the bigger challenges we face, the sorts of challenges that we can't solve by going at home and watching Netflix. I'm thinking of climate change and social injustice. Can we can we take something for those? That's an interesting question. And I think that it's the one thing that the government could, so not the could, the government did struggle with during the pandemic was how do we actually relate this to these broader challenges that are faced? And I, the big example of this I can see is how they could handle mortgages versus renters during the pandemic. Um, you know, the mortgages in New Zealand, I believe there's six major banks, um, somewhere around there, and it means that, you know, the government could sit down with representatives of the banks and agree pretty quickly on mortgage freezes and support and, you know, operate on this position of kindness. But the rental market, of course, there's a lot more than six landlords in New Zealand. And it meant that this kind of similar approach that worked for the mortgage market couldn't work in housing. Um, and I mean, since the government has, with extending the uh, bright line requirements, I think that was a really good move in terms of kind of, it was quite smart of how do we start to change the framework or adjust frameworks that we consider this through. But the tools that the government is using weren't able to regulate such a complicated market, so, you know, as the rental one. And I think, you know, that a lot of the wage subsidy and this kind of thing kind of trickled through people and then ended up, you know, <laughs> in property. And that's why the, because, you know, where else could it go? Um, and that's, it's, you know, been one of, I think, the, 
failings of the code response. Um, and this really, so I think that really what needs to be applied here is not just the wellness, but recognizing that like it did when uh, the labor process had to shut down for a lot of people under level uh, four and level three to a lesser extent, the government has a place to step in when something's not working and keep connections going and keep processes working, you know, with things like, you know, like I did with the wage subsidy and other support available for businesses. I think with things like the housing market, it needs to have this wellness approach, but then also a toolkit that's, you know, still fair and democratic, of course, but allows similar intervention to facilitate well-functioning social relationships and social processes like it could during the pandemic. And I think that's the big challenge is going to be how, what does that look like? And how can we, whether it's climate change or, you know, a just transition or the housing market, how can this wellbeing approach give us a toolkit that we can step in with it and make sure that these social relationships are functioning sustainably. Let's squeeze in the second of our music choices. Let's have Pavement Range Life. Why this? Similar reason. That's on my playlist and I like it. Um, there's a lovely, there's two lovely lakes on the campus here at Waikato and I love to sit by them, have a morning coffee and listen to the song. So I was listening to it this morning. Oh, 
I have some questions to end the show and oops not very much time to do them so we shall have to be quick what's the biggest cool. success you've had in the last couple of years i think getting into honors and that and you know setting myself up as an independent adult uh you know honors is a small step you know on the academic pathway but for the first time i'm kind of in a university setting in my own capacity and able to contribute in my own capacity, fairly independently to knowledge, and you know that's why I did undergraduate, and it's a passion, and I'm glad I'm able to do that fairly successfully. I think. What's your superpower? Cool. It's a very good question. Finding things in Google Scholar is a very good superpower. I think. Um, kind of. I I will always love finding kind of niche articles from kind of random French journals and this kind of thing that really challenge perspectives and it's quite enjoyable. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I definitely used to be. Um, kind of, I did a raising your profile course with the library and we talked to Google my name and the first thing that came up was a, um, a press release I did in 2018 as a spokesperson for Tamaki Antifascist Action. And I think that, you know, that's very activisty. At the moment, I'm definitely more on the scholarly side, but I think that I like to consider myself a kind of activist scholar nowadays. And my hope in my research can actually be used for social movements and trade unions and that kind of thing to make a better future. What motivates you? The idea that a better world is possible, a more social world is possible, if we put in the time to think and discuss and debate what that looks like and how we, what we need to do to get there. What's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or two? I think figuring out what comes next, kind of, because as COVID finishes, hopefully, you know, with the vaccines and everything, and things, the world opens up, I don't really know what's coming next and where I'll go or what will happen. And I'm looking forward to figuring out where life takes me next after I finish my honours. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Take a break, I think. You know, I've really learned that, I've really learned recently 
that being productive isn't the same thing as having a busy schedule. And you know, if I find that if you use, like I used to use Trello too much, you know, and creating your schedule too much, you end up looking at the schedule and then not doing it because you're too overwhelmed, you know? So realize the difference between being busy and accomplishing things, I think is the big thing. Thank you for that. Thank you very much for joining me. Perfect, no worries. Thank you, Sam. Last night, oh, my attention Squinting westward at the sunset With my pan and compass When a man reached up, said something there Against the sky, a point of light To give itself to the naked eye On the shore, people yelling In their eyes a great reflection In the grid aware, their position Unconcerned with intuition sympathy from that wilderness so you've been listening to blowing bubbles positive conversations with people in their bubbles their safe spaces around the world we're broadcast every monday wednesday and friday on otago access radio and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. We're brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, who are brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We've had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Dirty Projectors, Swing Low Magellan. I'm Samuel Mann at Otago Polytechnic in Dunedin, and I've been joined by Kat Balsink from the University of Waikato. We hope you enjoyed the show. What you ignore I saw my friend in a pool of light All drowned in doubt and shame And I knew that I had lost my sight This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.